Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, everyone, and welcome to season two of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. Have I brushed my hair today? I'm not telling, but probably not. This podcast is all about dream jobs, the ones you wished you had when you were a kid and the ones you pin up on your vision board. I decided to chase after my own in 2020 by taking a series of unpaid internships. I quit my job as CEO of a philanthropy consulting business to try my hand working on Broadway, in fitness, as an art dealer, and in a hotel. And then I wrote a book about it. My What If Year is coming from Zibby Books in February 2023. I am obsessed with the idea that you can turn your passion into your career and that it's never too late to make your dream a reality. So before you decide to quit your day job, listen to my guests as they offer a glimpse into what their worlds are really like behind the scenes. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Quit Your Day Job. I am here today with the fantastic Britt Frank. Britt is a clinician, educator, and trauma specialist, and the author of the new book, The Science of Stuck. She speaks and writes widely about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed, which we're definitely going to talk about today. Britt received her BA from Duke University and her master's in social work from the University of Kansas, where she later became an award-winning adjunct professor. She was a primary therapist at a drug and alcohol treatment center, an inpatient therapist at a children's psychiatric hospital, and now owns a private practice. Britt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so, so glad to have you here. I have wanted to talk to a therapist on this podcast whole first season. I just think it is such a fascinating career, and I'm so grateful. I know you're in the middle of like loads of book promotion now, so you're probably doing these 100 times a day, but my goal is for this to be the most fun half hour of your week, if ever. we can manage, or or ever. Yeah, let's go ever. forever. Think big, think big. Amazing. So as you know, Britt, we're going to start out with a top five. The clock is ticking because therapists are always checking for the end of the hour, right? So you know that. But uh, I wanted to know from you before we got started, who were your top five therapists? And I gave you quite a broad remit. I said, fictional or real, dead or alive, Let's go. Tell me who your top five are. Top five therapists. Okay, go. Edith Eager. Her work is absolutely incredible. I just want to sit at her feet and listen to her talk forever. Esther Perel. I have shadow parts of me that are jealous and want to be her. So I have to remind them like she gets to be her. I get to be me, but she is (laughs) freaking everything from her brain to her work, to her jewelry. I just love Esther Perel. Melanie Klein, who created play therapy. She was the first person to discover that children actually communicate their insights through play and that they have loads of insight. If you know how to talk to them and that play is their language. 
so brilliant. Richard Schwartz, who created internal family systems therapy, which changed my life and just so brilliant. And then Sean McGuire, Robin Williamson's therapist character in Goodwill Hunting. So much yes. Oh my God. Okay. So first of all, that was like amazing and very fast. So thank you for that. Four <laughs> real therapists and one, just one fictional one. Do you feel like the movies and TV and the, do they get it wrong a lot when it comes to portraying they, therapy? It drives me bananas. They get it so wrong because the balance, like I love the show Lucifer, but Dr. Linda is sleeping with her patients and having <laughs> babies with his brother. And it's, you know, there's always a therapist that's either sleeping with the client or in some egregious way, you know, breaking boundary. And I get that that does happen, but it would be nice if they showed an ethical, solid, you know, like Sean McGuire yeah. in Good Will Hunting. Yeah. Like that's, yes. That's so funny. That does actually kind of make me weirdly want to watch that show more because I know that drama is happening, although it's probably not a very accurate portrayal of therapy. But the idea that she's having a baby with his brother. Ooh, it's juicy. All right, Lucifer, going on <laughs> oh, my sorry, two watches. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, God, spoiler alert. Is that show even still on? Is that like a no. new? Okay, phew. We can't spoil that then. That was fantastic. And a real range of like amazing people that have inspired your career and just people you like. So thank you for sharing those. That's a great question. So your book and the premise of your work and what we're here to talk about today is about being stuck and figuring out how to no longer be stuck. And that is uh, truly a major theme of my podcast and in my own life, something that I've been focusing on uh, and what inspired this and my book and all of those other things. So I really want to learn about, I really want to hear from you about what you learned during your writing process and before and since. But the first thing I want to know is about you. So I want to know what your life is like, like a therapist. And I want you to tell us a bit about your journey. Were you stuck at some point? Are you now still stuck? How did you get to where you are now? So the concept of stuck is so personal. This whole book project was so personal because I was very, very stuck in a variety. I was stuck with mental health. I was stuck with relationships. I was stuck with addiction. I was stuck with identity. Who am I? What do I want to do? My longest relationship up until I became a therapist was with cigarettes and with waitressing. Cause those were my two long-term <laughs> things that had always been with me. And eventually I got, you know, some insight into this whole humaning thing and how our brains are wired and how we work. And after I started getting a little bit of healing, I'm like, I want to be a, th that just sounds like the, I've always, always, since I was little, been fascinated by humans. It's not like I wanted to help people. I wasn't that altruistic. It was more <laughs> like, I feel like my factory settings were installed like wrong. And if I like become a therapist, I can learn how to human. Cause I really didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And so it was more born out of that than I want to help humanity, even though now <laughs> that's a nice bonus. And so in my mid thirties, I went to grad school or really in my early thirties, I went back to grad school and in my mid thirties started my career as a therapist. And up until then was a lot of banging my head on random careers, doing lots of different things. And I absolutely love my work. So being a therapist and writing and speaking and teaching is my dream and yay. Now it's here. Yay. I love that. And did you, when you were kind of realizing that you loved people and wanted to know how people worked when you were growing up, did you ever think, I want to be a therapist or did that not come till later? Oh, it wasn't, I love people. It's, I don't understand people. Oh, I don't understand people. I don't people. understand how to be people <laughs> and people don't seem to understand me. And I was so just isolated. I felt so crazy and mm. so alone and so disconnected. I had always wanted to be a therapist because I would try to interview people really to figure out like, how are, how do you work? Like, how does this 
how does this life thing work? And so ever since I was really in elementary school where I would like sit down with people when they would let me and ask them questions, like, so like, how do you have friends? Like, how does that work? How does friends work? (laughs) And it was so, oh, my little parts, so sad. They were trying so hard and did not have a lot of support, but it was this career was really born out of a deep, deep desire to understand why we do the things we do and to find an alternative to the, I must be crazy explanation because it's not true. There's no such thing as crazy. I'm like imagining you in your school cafeteria, like Lucy from, or no, who was it from Charlie Brown, Sally, where she's like the doctor's in. You're like, come here and tell me about your problems. little notebook. Seriously. Exactly. So my, my husband, who's not a therapist is like convinced that he would make an amazing therapist. He says this all the time when he gives me like any advice and I'm not so sure, but we decided that you were going to adjudicate this debate for us on the podcast today. So what would you say are the qualities that make a great therapist? I think the qualities that make a great therapist are, are you doing your own work? You know, a dirty secret of the therapy profession is that therapists are not required to have ever spent one hour on the couch as a client and it should be mandatory. So any therapist who's, and it doesn't mean you have to do therapy every week forever. I don't do that now, but every therapist should have a rock solid mental health, wellness, holistic very broad infrastructure to support the work they're doing. So if they have no interest and they have no friends and they have nothing that, you know, they go home to that gets us into trouble. Mm. So the first and foremost thing that makes a great therapist is someone that is taking care of their own mental health first and someone who can be wholly unattached from the outcome of the person in front of them. Can you sit in front of a person and be okay if they die? Can you sit in front of a person and be okay if they overdose? That sounds callous and it sounds harsh, but the greatest gift a therapist can give a client is to have no agenda and to love skillfully and unconditionally, which if you're in relationship with someone, that's impossible mm. reasonably. But the therapy relationship is so special because it's the one place where you don't have to worry about the person in front of you imposing an agenda. But that's easier said than done because I'm still human. And do you, are you able to leave it at the door when you get home? Are Can you really kind of separate yourself from that, what you're listening to, what you're hearing from your patients? For the most part, now I can't. And that was not always true. <laughs> like I was a hot mess when it came to just over-functioning. And, and again, when I invested in the outcome, I'm only a good therapist if they get better. And this is not to say I'm just like, okay, well, if you die or overdose, I'm fine with that. I am not saying that. But to say, I will love you through whatever your journey looks like. I will give you the best information available to me that I think will help you. And then I respect your autonomy to go and do with that information what you want. If that is where I'm sitting, then I don't have have to bring it home because it's not their successes aren't mine and their decisions to not do or whatever are also not mine. Um, but I have to do a lot of self-care and a lot of my own mental health in order to stay in that unattached, yeah. loving, but unattached place. I can imagine. So you now have a private practice and you're working on your book or you, your book is coming out, but you worked at a treatment center and you worked in a psychiatric hospital. Um, how was that experience and why did you decide to transition into private practice? So working in, they call it, you know, in the trenches and the social or really the front lines of social work and the people who are doing this work, it's the system is very, very ill-equipped to provide the adequate support for its providers. And so it's really hard to be in that world and not burn out and not completely disintegrate. And I did, I had more than a few 
just meltdowns. Mm. And I figured out very quickly that the way I wanted to structure my life, the best way I could be supportive to other people while being supportive of myself was to be my own boss. I don't play well with others in a work context. I collaborate well and I like people and I love working with other people. But as far as practicing, I do better in my own sandbox than having coworkers and a team and a management staff and a board and all of that. And how do you find your clients? I mean, I'm hearing kind of anecdotally that people are waiting months and months to find a therapist now because everyone is just struggling with the pandemic and modern life in general. What's like the supply and demand like and how do people find you or how do you find them? It's really interesting because the how do I find my clients? I don't really know. I don't advertise. I just started very organically when I opened my doors by doing talks and getting out into the community and really offering just I'll do a lunch and learn and, you know, let me just provide you with what I do so you know. And then it was word of mouth that sort of found its way from there. That's fantastic. I understand that most therapists are not supposed to be there to like tell you what to do. Is that true? So true. That goes back to what makes a great therapist. We are not advice givers. And I've sat in front of therapists as a client who are advice givers. And that doesn't work, right? Because Mm. if I take the advice and it works, that's not my win. That's my therapist's win because they told me what to do. So really what a skillful therapist should be doing is helping clients hear themselves think. Like my job is not to sell you on my way to do life. It's to help you hear yourself to know how do you want to do yours and to help sort of quiet the chatter that interrupts that process. And do you ever really, really want to tell somebody what you think they should be doing and just have to stop yourself? (laughs) Yes, every second of every damn day. And, you know, that part of me, that like little Miss Bossy Pants part, that's like, I know best and let me tell you. I just had to tell her, oh, that's sweet, honey. Just shush, shush, they got this. Because to give advice, whether you're a therapist or a well-meaning friend, like unsolicited advice, is actually speaking into someone's like, non-capableness. When I don't give you advice, it's because I believe in your capacity to find your answer. Mm. And that doesn't mean, again, I'm going to be like, sorry, you're on your own. It's with skillful questioning and some tools. And if there's trauma, here's some information. I have found that almost it's almost never the case that people can't find their way to their answers unless they're being subject to oppression or systemic failures or extreme poverty or things like that. But generally with adequate resources and safety and information, people are quite capable of hearing themselves know what they want and who they are. I think that's so fascinating. I I'm, I mean, my career has mostly been as a consultant, which is like literally telling people what to do. And I remember my younger brother once, and we've always had like a very older sister, younger brother relationship. And and I just, you know, he would call and like something would be wrong. And I just constantly go to the advice place first. And he said to me a few years ago, he was like, sometimes I really don't want to hear your advice. Sometimes I just want to say what I'm going to say. And I just need to say it. And I just want you to say, God, that really sucks. I'm really sorry that that happened. And I kind of blew my mind, which I know sounds a little bit stupid now, but like, I just had never thought, first of all, I never thought anybody wouldn't want my advice, which is mistake number one. But also like, I just never thought like, well, you know, obviously if someone doesn't want my advice, they'll tell me they don't want my advice. And so subsequently, I've been so much more conscious about, you know, just saying like, hey, what are we doing here? Like, do you just want, do you just want to talk? Because I'm here to listen. Or would you like to actually, you know, do you want my advice on whatever it is that you're dealing with? And then he'll tell me. And I feel like it's made our relationship so much better. And in turn has just made me better at listening in general because it's made me think, okay, not everybody 
really wants to hear my advice all the time. This is why I wrote a memoir and not a self-help book, by the way. Because... <laughs> it's so fantastic. And the question, do you want me to listen or do you want advice is a beautiful question for relationships. When I sit in front of, and I ask clients that too, sometimes if they say to me, I want your advice, I will say, I love you and no. No, I mean, sometimes it is. It's like, here's a strategy. Sometimes if I can really help something, you know, that's just a quick, like, okay, hey, here's some information that this, this is a quickie, but generally for the bigger things, advice actually keeps us from feeling our own power because it's not my wisdom. It's your advice. Yeah. And you will get to your own wisdom with the right space, with the right questions, with the right container. But yeah, sometimes advice is is needed and helpful and useful. And when it's solicited, that's best. Solicited advice, exactly. <laughs> Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> and you mentioned your own kind of self-care and the work that you've done. What do, what do you do for self-care? How do you practice that in your own life? So I see a therapist for sure. And I'm a pain in the butt as a client, like all the great, you know, therapy holding space I do. I am, I, I resist very hard my own painful truths and all of that. So I work very hard at keeping myself honest with myself. I have really good friends. I have a little dog sitting on my lap and I also do amateur circus performing and I have a show tonight. So what? I'm all like, ah! yeah. So that's a thing I do. I'm sorry. We're just going to need to just Dig in on that one second. What does that even mean? Is that like trapeze? So my my thing is aerial hoop. So it's, <gasps> you know, it's a big round metal bar that spins from the ceiling and you hang on it and do. I found that that is the only place where my brain shuts up because there is no thinking anything except ow or oh crap or, you know, because you're spinning. So you're yeah. disoriented and dizzy. I'm terrified of heights. So you're up. <gasps> and it's such a beautiful way for me to quiet my brain. And I get to wear sparkly things and be pretty and be all circusy. Okay. So yeah. Hands down the greatest hobby that we've had shared <laughs> on this podcast in two seasons. How did you find that that was something that helped you feel good? So I can take it to a really weird place if you want me to go super honest. Kind of. Yeah. So, <laughs> This Okay, so disclaimer here. Do not try this at home unless you've been through your own process and you have supervision with a mental health professional. This is what works for me. So having been a survivor of assault trauma and childhood abuse and domestic violence and all of that, I was very used to my physical body being just really mistreated. And so my brain equated physical pain with danger. So anytime I was in any type of discomfort, I would panic. And so like, I have like, you know, doing aerial is bruises and cuts and scrapes, but my brain was able to reassociate, Hey, this pain is in service of an art that we love. And it's in service of our choice and our autonomy. And I really did a lot of healing of my assault trauma through being bruised and scraped and bloody and dizzy and nauseous on an aerial hoop. So that's- Did you just wake up one morning and you were like, I know what I want to do. I want to go do circus skills or- I did it as a kid at summer camp. And then I saw a show of this amateur student- 
performance company and there were women my age who you know, looked like me and who were humans, you know, most, I think of circuit, like, like Cirque du Soleil, they are not human. They oh, are, yeah. they, I mean, they are, but they are just these magnificent, superhuman, mm-hmm. magical superhumans, but here were human humans doing this art form. I'm like, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. And I was willing to suck and I was willing to be humiliated and new and awful and just uncoordinated and embarrassed. And it was really worth it to be uncomfortable and bad at something. So I could be able to, I wouldn't say I'm great at it, but I'm competent enough that I can do things on it. And that's fun. I love this so much. And it's made <laughs> me think I need to be braver. I, I've taken up tap dancing. It's much yes! closer to the ground and harder to hurt yourself. But <laughs> just as scary, any type of art or, you know, like I'm a cognitive person. I like being in my head. I, I like not being in my body. And so any type of art, I think anybody over the age of 12, that's willing to engage in some sort of body-based art form, go you, brave of whatever, whatever it looks like. So awesome. So it feels like all of these things you do are kind of manifested of you no longer being stuck, maybe. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, you're, you're, you're a therapist, you've got this practice. What made you decide to turn everything you had learned into a book? So I've always known that I was going to, I think everyone has a book in them and I've writing was a really good way for me as a kid to dissociate away from my reality. So I would escape into my books and into stories and writing has always been just with, along with my cigarettes and my waitressing skills, writing has always been with me, but I started posting on Instagram, just random thoughts of things that I learned, or here's my show and tell of all of the best teachers that I've had and what they've had to say. And here are my thoughts on those things. And after like 500 posts, I'm like, oh, wow, I have a book here. (laughs) And so then I went through the very arduous process of pitching agents and putting a book proposal and getting rejected hundreds of times and hurry up and wait. And okay, maybe this time, oh, wait, no. And here's a nip, oh, wait, no. And so five years of a lot of no's and a lot of waiting, but it only takes one yes. Yeah. Amazing. And so let's talk about the book a little bit and especially about being stuck in your life. And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are interested in, or maybe feeling like they're stuck professionally, maybe curious about exploring what else is out there in terms of their jobs. So why do we stay stuck, especially Mm. professionally, but I think in all the areas of our life, you know, why, why, why is this such an issue that there was a whole book to write about it and, and maybe more? Sure. And my disclaimer, because it's really important to me to be responsible, the type of stuck that I'm talking about assumes that you have choices and resource. You know, yeah. if, if you're living in a place where you don't have a choice, you've got three kids depending on you and you have a system set up against you and you're not going to be able to have the luxury of sitting or the privilege of sitting down and doing that. And that is totally. an unfortunate, tragic reality. This is not that. I My work focuses specifically on you have choices, you have options. There's no logical reason why you can't change your career or start a hobby or whatever. But for some reason, you're stuck in the gap between knowing what you want and doing what you want. And you're doing the opposite of what you want. That's stuck. Okay. Okay. Why do we stay stuck? One, we don't have the right information. People think procrastination and laziness and lack of motivation is a moral failing. And if I just summon up my grit, I'll be okay. There are nervous system functions that paralyze us. And we don't know that. I mean, imagine if you didn't know you had an emergency brake on your car or have you ever tried to drive your car and you forgot the emergency brake was on? It's like, why is it yes. going? <laughs> hey, like emergency brake. You have an emergency brake in your brain and it doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. If you don't know that your emergency brake is on, 
You're not going to get off the couch. You're not going to start a business. You're not going to go and whatever, but that's not your fault. It's because your physiology is doing something. And this work that I'm so passionate about is here's just driver Z for your brain. Mm. Just so you know, if you're really feeling stuck, here are a few things, you know, the process isn't like easy, but it's simple. Mm-hmm. Our lives are complex, but our brains are not actually, you know, the freeze mechanism, the fight and flight mechanism. There's enough research that shows here's a little bit of how you can work with these. Like you don't need an auto mechanics degree to drive a car. Yeah. So you just need to know enough to get around and then you get help for the other things. Our brains are the same way. So you just need to know a little bit of information to get moving and then get help for the other things. Yeah. So it's amazing to me with accurate information, how quickly we can get going. And the other reason we stay stuck is because we lie to ourselves all the time, every day Mm. about everything, everything from I'm fine to I love what I'm doing to I should be grateful for what I have to whatever. If we're not going to get honest with ourselves about ourselves, we're going to get stuck and we're going to stay stuck. Is there like a moment that you reflect on where you decided you, you weren't going to be doing that anymore in your own life, that you weren't going to be stuck? Or do you feel like it happened slowly, incrementally over a long period of time? I wish I had the, the God woke me up with the burning bush and then <laughs> I had a thunderbolt moment and then I never drank again, kind of. It, that, no, mine was a crawling through the sludge of my own making, hoping that for those little glimmers of possibility and following them, the little breadcrumbs until I looked around one day and life stopped sucking, but it was very incremental and it was really just moment to moment. And it it was very much, I looked around one day and was like, Oh, this is good. I am not hating every second of being alive every day anymore. Cool. Very slow shifts over time. And what do you think is step one for people? Admit that you're not okay. And admit that there's information that you need, right? Because what do we do? First, we lie. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Then we assume the problem is us. So maybe the problem isn't you. Maybe you just need to unlock your emergency brake, which is an automatic nervous system thing. That's not like a, let me just think my way forward. Our thinking work doesn't work if our nervous system is locked down. So step one, get honest. Step two, you have a brain. Your brain lives inside a body. Your body does things. And if you have some information about how it does what it does, you're going to be able to get moving. How have people responded? I know you're still in early stages. Is the book is the book out yet as we're recording this? Yes. Okay. It came out March 22nd. March 22nd. So you're a couple weeks in, almost two months into your publication process. How have people been responding to your message? I am so grateful that it's it's been received really well. And I really wrote the book that I needed when I was starting because it didn't exist. It's like I had the big giant stack of self-help books, but no time and no inclination or bandwidth to read them. Mm. And so I took my stack and bullet point, you know, I'm really big on, Hey, here's what he says about this. And here's what anxiety is. And here are just a few relational tricks. It's like, here's just the bottom line. So you can get moving. And people seem to be very happy with how quick I lay everything out. It's not a deep dive. I love the deep dive as a therapist, but mm-hmm. it is this book is just enough info to get you going. And so now you've got the book, you've got this kind of public facing, you know, element. You've got still your private practice, yes, yeah, so you're still seeing patients. Mm-hmm. So give me like an average day or uh, you know, there's probably no average day. I think no one has an average day, but like pick a day and talk me through what you what you do in it. 
I'll tell you what I'm doing today. Okay, so perfect. I wake up. The first thing I do is coffee and take my meds because psych meds for some people in some cases are awesome. And I count myself as part of that. And then I journal and I do Julia Cameron's practice of morning pages. Morning pages. Doing, yep. Mm-hmm, Love it. Some- 2007, that is sacred to me. And then I eat and then I either do a podcast or I do admin or whatever. And then I see clients during the day. I take walks with my dog. And then tonight is opening night for a circus show that I'm in. <laughs> and are you ever playing that beautiful piano that's behind you? Yeah, I do that as a, again, like piano is vibrant, you know, it's vibrations and it's sound and it's sensory. And it's really hard to panic and play music at the same time. It's hard to panic and tap dance at the same time. So it's yes, really, which is usually, I know because I'm usually panicking while I'm tap dancing. I'll panic before <laughs> and after, but while I'm doing it, it's like, you know, survival physiology kicks in, just hold on for your life and don't like up. So, you know, I, I try to keep my days not super one thing. I, yeah, I like yeah. to do lots, unless I'm writing. When I was writing the book, I took a week <laughs> off a month to do nothing but go into my cave and write. Oh, I love but that. that was fun. But generally it's coffee and journaling and then a variety of work projects, which I love. And then in the evenings, I spend time with my husband or friends or dogs or alone. I'm an introvert and I need inordinate amounts of alone quiet time. Amazing. And what would you say is like the biggest misconception that people have about being a therapist? Like, what do you think people assume about your job that's actually not at all factually correct? That all I do all day is listen to people's problems. That's a fun (laughs) one. Like I could do that. I'm like, okay. Yeah, no, that's not what we do. We don't just listen. It's not like we're paid friends. So it's not that. And the other misconception is that we're all taking home all, you know, and some do, but it's not a drag. People are like, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, this lights me up. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think we all have our gift and our place in the world, but I listen to what some of my girlfriends do for work. And I'm like, oh my God, you're on a team and there are meetings and there are conferences and you have like that kind of, no, 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 no. I would much rather be eight hours in an office talking about trauma than three hours with a team doing whatever. So you know, my, my life works for me. (laughs) You found what was great for you, which is, I think so amazing. You found something you're obviously extremely passionate about. You can hear it in your voice. You can see it in your face and you've just taken it through. So I just think that is a fabulous, fabulous story. I usually finish by asking for advice for people of any age who are interested in doing what you do, or even maybe just thinking the way that you think, because I think there's probably a lot of people who are going to listen to this and be like, I need more of that in my life. What advice would you give somebody who's any age, maybe straight out of studying, maybe they are much later in their life and thinking about a career change? How would they get started if they were thinking, like my husband, maybe I want to be a therapist. Tell your husband to go get a therapist. And if he's not working on his therapy really, really hard, then he's not ready to be a therapist Uh yet. See, Ha-ha. I told you, Carlos. Ha ha. <laughs> Sorry, dude. But because you need to know, because we're human, we need to know where where are our blind spots? Where are our prejudices? Where are we not able to hold space without an agenda? And if you can't do that, that's fine. But go work that out first yeah. um, instead of working it out in real time with real people. And then start reading. There's a bajillion types of therapy out there and there's a bajillion types of healing out there. And figure out what model you like. I love somatic work, which is body-based work. And that's Dr. Peter Levine. 
I love internal family systems and that's Dr. Richard Schwartz. Um, the body keeps the score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Those are sort of like my three, you know, gurus and their work inspired everything that I do now. So start looking around. I mean, there's so much information. You don't have to know all of it. Just when you find something that lights you up and gives you that spark of, Oh, I really like this. Like follow your green lights and they'll lead you towards whatever is, is meant for you. That is awesome advice. So your book, The Science of Stuck, is out in bookstores. Where else can people learn more about you or find your work online? So you can find me on Instagram where I spend an inordinate amount of time at Brit Frank. I didn't say that. In my typical day, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. <laughs> uh, shame. And you can find more about the book at scienceofstuck.com. Awesome. Britt, this has been so energizing. Thank you. This was better than the three coffees I've had today for like getting me up and going. Thank you so much and have an amazing day. And do I say break a leg to a circus performer or is that? I don't know what we're supposed to say, but I'll take it. All right. Break, Break a leg tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zcast production and want to send huge thanks to the whole Zippy Books team for their support. You can find me on Instagram at Alicia F. Miranda. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode, any others, future jobs you want me to interview, or burning questions you think I should ask my upcoming guests. And if you decide to quit your day job, let me know that too. Bye.